Welcome Ann Seba, New York Times bestselling biographer, lecturer, journalist, former Reuters foreign correspondent, author of 11 books for adults. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how you have time to even talk to me today, but thank you for taking some time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, you're welcome. But after reading a review of your bio, I think it was in the New York Times, but I can't remember. Reviews are everywhere, and everybody should go take a look at some of them. Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. I rushed out to get it, and then I read all through the night, um, and I was unable to let it go. And then in the end, as I was doing some homework around you, I had to laugh because you and I had the same exact experience in 1976, I read the Book of Daniel, which is a partially fictionalized account of the Rosenberg story, and it's told from the point of view of their oldest son, Daniel. And I became obsessed, and I read everything I could get my hands on about that story. And it appears that that was one of the seeds that were placed in you to do this book. Absolutely, only I was two years later than you. So in 1978, Reuters decided in their wisdom that because I was pregnant, I couldn't possibly be a foreign correspondent and a mother. And in those days, they could do that. So I was let go, as you'd say now, and I came to live in New York with my husband and small son. And while there, I had a baby girl. So I was the mother of a son and a daughter. But not only that, I had time on my hands because I didn't have a full-time job. So I read a lot and I immersed myself in American literature. And that was one of the books that I absolutely remember reading. I still have the copy of that book. I also read Sophie's Choice at that point. And somehow both together, they infused me with this idea of how difficult it is to be a mother, what impossible burdens are placed on you as a mother. But I couldn't possibly have written a biography then. I wasn't ready. The story had to settle. I had a lot of living to do. And my most recent book was called Les Parisiennes, How Women Lived, Loved and Died in Paris in the 1940s. And I wrote in that about a lot of spies or SOE women, as we call them, special operations executive. And I began to think about the problem of spying for women, which sometimes was to their advantage because the Germans often thought, well, such a pretty woman couldn't possibly be a spy. In other words, there were double standards. And at that point, my publishers were polite enough to say to me, well, surely there's a French spy you'd like to write about next. And there wasn't really, because many of the most interesting already had biographies. But I suddenly remembered this story of Ethel Rosenberg. And I realized as I spoke to people that everybody said, ah, the Rosenbergs, those spies, as if they were one indissoluble unit. And I figured, actually, however close and loving the marriage was, Ethel must have been an independent person. And that's what intrigued me, trying to separate or extrapolate Ethel. And I was not disappointed. I found it a really intriguing challenge to look at her as a woman in the context of the time, as a woman living with a man who, as we now know, was a spy. Well, what's interesting to me is when I look back on having read it at the time, I don't know why I was so interested in it. But now with hindsight, you know, 50 years later, what I can say is 
I think she was so alien to who I wanted to be, but I didn't even realize the context of the feminist point of view of Ethel, which is why your book is so important now. Would it be that book had been available in the mid seventies? Because I think it could have changed the trajectory of many women's lives, but we have to set the context for the times. Now it's interesting. Apparently 70% of Americans who are younger than 40 know nothing about the Holocaust. So the likelihood that this book about Ethel Rosenberg, who along with her husband Julius was electrocuted for conspiring with Russia as a spy, is not exactly going to be a household name to those women especially. So I think we have to set the stage a little bit to make sure that those who are not familiar with the Rosenberg situation, which again, judging from the new data that's coming out about what women earlier than 40 know about history, I think they probably don't. So I just want to set the stage for a quick second. So the Rosenbergs were electrocuted on June 19th, 1953. They had two small boys who visited them that day. And the left was screaming about it. The McCarthy type Americans said, let them fry. And what's interesting to that moment in time now is it's not dissimilar from some of the American politics that are before us right now. So they were convicted spies who supposedly turned over documents to the Russians that allowed them to obtain the atomic bomb. But years later, it is confirmed that Julius was a spy, although not necessarily turning over evidence as valuable as enabling the Russians to build that bomb of destruction. But Russia had no code name for Ethel, which would have been very unusual at the time. Now, if they didn't have a code name for her, does that mean she wasn't a spy? And basically, the answer is yes. It meant that she probably wasn't. So it's not really clear what her role was any more than it's clear. Let's take people we are more familiar with, Ruth Maddow, who I want to talk about if, if you have any knowledge of her. So it's not really clear what her role was. But if she knew and did nothing, it's important to note, and you make this point in the book, that that's not a crime. To know that your husband is breaking the law is not necessarily put you behind bars. So they were the first civilians to be charged and put to death for conspiracy to commit espionage in peacetime. And the case has long been judged, including by so many of those on the political right, as the U.S.'s ugly mistake of the Cold War. It was a big deal. It was as big as all the Trump stuff going on now. It was front page news for months and even years. So we've got to go back and go to the culture of the time. So in 1950, about one in three women participated in the labor force. Now, to give that context, we know that by 1998, nearly three of every five women were working. So when Ethel was out there, people were not working. She was somebody who was raising her sons. She was very committed to her husband. She'd had a rough childhood, which you lay out so beautifully in the book, but we can't spend too much time there. And so in context, the fact that they would take a woman who was never at the forefront of anything and actually electrocute her, can you set the stage a little bit for what a big deal it was for those who are really not familiar with what was going on at the time? Yes, absolutely. Well, let's go back to World War II. So America won the war, the Allies, America and England and, and Western Europe, but they felt almost immediately that they were in danger of losing the peace. So Churchill spoke famously of an iron curtain descending. And in 1949, so only 
um, four years after the war, the Russians exploded their own atomic bomb. The Americans had been building their bomb in Los Alamos, the Manhattan Project, and they were convinced that the Russians couldn't possibly be able to build a bomb, let alone know how to deliver it. That actually was much more complex than the actual creation of a bomb. And when they did in 49, and when China became communist a year later, and then there was the Korean War, there was a real existential fear that Russia might drop a bomb on America, that the communist bloc might win the peace and take over. What had they fought for? They'd fought for the American way of life. Think of all those thousands of American lives that had been lost in the fight for the American dream, however you define that. So there was a real fear and a search for how on earth could Russia have been able to make a bomb. And in that search, there were these documents decoded, cables really, that went between New York and the KGB. And once the Americans got hold of these cables, and there were thousands of them, there was a rush to decrypt them to see who was involved. And these cables were given a name, which is Venona. It doesn't actually mean anything. But it was the decryption of the Venona cables which had to be kept top secret, so it couldn't be revealed at their trial, but it was these cables that gave the British information about an East German spy called Klaus Fuchs, who had been working on the Manhattan Project. Klaus Fuchs was arrested in England in 1950. He quickly confessed, and he was given 14 years, which is the maximum in England for espionage, and he served only nine and a half. Klaus Fuchs named names. He named his courier, who was a man called Harry Gold. Harry Gold named two people in Albuquerque whom he dealt with, who were part of this spying ring, and they were called David Greenglass, Ethel's younger brother, and Ruth, his wife. David and Ruth also named, well, not names, they named a name, just Julius. And one of the reasons I wanted to write my book now is because David's grand jury testimony has finally been revealed. He lived until 2014 when he died at 92. And it's quite clear from that, as people had suspected all along, that when David was first arrested, he said, leave my sister out of it. Ethel, she wasn't a spy. She didn't have anything to do with this, not just because she's my sister. She really didn't. But by the time he came to trial in March 1950, his story had changed. He'd done a plea bargain, he and his wife, Ruth. So Ruth was never indicted. And David had a 10-year sentence. Well, he served just shy of 10 years in the end. So they were let off lightly. And what they said, what David lied about in the trial, which was the only overt act with which they could charge Ethel, he said he had seen Ethel do some typing of notes, an invented story. As he said, when he came out of prison, he couldn't really remember if anyone had done the typing. If anybody had, perhaps it was his own wife, Ruth. So although after he named Julius, Julius was arrested in the summer of 1950, 
Julius refused to name names. So the chain of naming people stopped there. But the American authorities, or rather the FBI, knew from this secret information that they didn't want to reveal that actually Julius had been involved, certainly as a spying recruiter. And they were sure he would name names when he didn't. They arrested his wife, Ethel, and they admitted that the evidence against Ethel was shaky at best. So they decided to charge her. And the word they used was to use her as a lever to put exactly. pressure on, on Julius. But she never named names either. All right. But what's important to note, I've, I've got I've to interject right here. Okay, we're talking about a million men and one woman. <laughs> so, And not only that, who was head of the FBI that you write so brilliantly about in the book? Hoover. Okay. Hoover, who we know has so many issues around women that we can't even possibly address, right? Hmm. So, so here's Ethel. And this is the part where I think you weave for me so well as a woman and why women need to read this book she really was in this sitting around a circle of patriarchs who had yeah. so little respect for who she was and what she was doing. And walk me through that. Well, there's misogyny riddled throughout this trial. So the jury was not sequestered and the media was writing about Ethel's demeanor, Ethel's clothes. Ethel looked dumpy, but nonetheless, look at her eyes. Her eyes are, are wicked. So there's an <laughs> attempt to label her, to turn her into a stereotype all the way along. The fact that she answered often by using the Fifth Amendment, it was decided that she was untrustworthy. So at every stage when she asked to call a lawyer, one of the government officials said, typical communist gesture, calling a lawyer, as if, you know, why should women know? But I could tell you the judge's summing up, which was riddled with misogyny. He accused Ethel of being almost three years older than Julius. Therefore, she must be the leader in, in this plan. And that, of course, got through to Eisenhower. Eisenhower believed she was the driving force. There are so many examples of how she was treated badly simply because she was a woman. They thought she's a martyr or, you know, she's a victim of Julius. They could not see her as a woman in her own right who actually was trying to be loyal. But it is important just to go back to these Venona cables because they do really indicate that, well, they say very clearly, Ethel does not work. She did not have great health. So not only was she a mother of two children by 1950, um, her second child was born in 47, but she was born with scoliosis, that sort of spinal curvature of the spine. She often had migraines. So that was another reason they gave for Ethel does not work. And the right. two men who decrypted these cables added a memo saying that might mean she doesn't go out to work, but it probably means she doesn't work for the KGB. I know what is so important to me, and again, I, I'm going to say this probably 10 times during this podcast, why this book needs to be read is because, so you've got both Truman, in reading the book, I'm going to add a couple of things, both Truman and Eisenhower could have gotten her off this and they didn't. It was totally men who decided, we'll use her as a ploy. It never worked. I mean, they even discussed, should we electrocute her first or him first? to try to get him to let her off the hook at the end. But moving right along to the moment of the time, I realized 
that there's no other woman that was sitting in that type of moment in that moment in American history. But what's so interesting is, so it's not as if there was a template there for how to use a woman in a, in a re- ridiculous way, this way. There was no template there, but men, I, I don't know how to say this, but they naturally knew they naturally knew all of them. We're talking about not just one guy who, who, who put this together, but you've named seven men right there. Yes. Somehow they knew how to use her in this way. Also, you point out in the book that they told her, don't smile. Looks, I mean, in other words, some of her demeanor was not her natural demeanor. It happened to be the demeanor they, her lawyers told her to use, which were all men. And that's why I've put this photograph in the book of Ethel smiling, because I really, what I was trying to do more than anything was establish her humanity, that she's a fully three or four dimensional human being. She's not a saint, she may be flawed, and she believed in communism, but let's see her as a warm human being and a good mother. But just, I really do want to go back to the trial, because it's so important to see how they skewered her. The attitude towards women was very complex. Post-war, men coming back from war, the idea was not only in America, but perhaps particularly there, give men back their jobs. They've been out to fight. If you've had a job during the war, you know, you should give it up so that the men aren't humiliated. So there was this attitude that women should stay at home and be perfect mothers and perfect households and housewives and buy fridges and and all those things that (laughs) material that the advertisers were trying to persuade people were material objects that they needed. And Ethel tried to do that. She was very clever, but she gave up her government job in Washington before they had children, as soon as Julius did, to come back and be a loyal wife. She thought that being a good mother was a perfectible science. She could buy the books, go on the course, and she'd become a perfect mother. So to some extent, she swallowed all of that. But in the trial, it is worth pointing out that there is only one woman on the jury and both the prosecution and the defense didn't really know whether having more women would actually help Ethel. The defense lawyers, because there was this long wrangling over prospective jurors, and some of them felt, you know, maybe other women will decide that Ethel is not a good example of an American housewife. And that's exactly what happened. Ethel was positioned somehow to be that woman who was subverting what it meant to be a good American housewife. And here's how they did it, if I can just tell these two stories from the trial. So the one is the introduction of the typewriter story. That was absolutely key because what the prosecution was cleverly doing by persuading David to lie that he'd seen Ethel type was to suggest to these jurors, look, your wife may be a typist, Maybe you have a secretary who's a typist. Women you know who are at the heart of your lives, they can't be trusted because here's Ethel who's typing for the enemy. So, you know, Sapol, the prosecuting counsel, had that summing up where he said she struck the keys blow by blow against America. Now, that message really struck home that here was a woman you may know in your life And if you can't trust them, well, where are we? The other clever piece of suggestibility was the jello box. 
you know, a jello was was something that all American housewives had in their kitchen and fed their children. And it was used as a theatrical stage prop in the trial. Roy Cohn introduced it and he made them cut it up to show how Ethel and Julius had used it by cutting it in an asymmetrical way as a recognition signal. And it may not actually have happened at all. And if there was a real one, that was long since gone. But again, it was showing that Ethel is a danger to the heart of what it means to be an American mother and a housewife. She's subverting the American image. She came to symbolize the evil at the heart of being an American woman. Or that's what they were trying to show she was. Well, in the last 15 minutes, we have laid out, you've laid out brilliantly what they did to position her and that this was the first template for that. Meaning I went back and looked over the last few days as I was preparing for this. They did it naturally. I mean, somehow they just all fell into place. So Mm. every man that you've mentioned played his role in this. And while some of it was discussed by Hoover, I mean, he had meetings where they discussed actual strategy around this. A lot of it was just a natural way to do it. Like we have to keep women submerged into the position that they could never be. And it's just so relevant to where we are now. And also to the fact that she was out of her league in terms of she didn't have people. There was nobody to help her through her strategy for how she could approach this. Nobody. So then we will want to go back to Ethel the person. So you've laid out brilliantly what happened to her by both our government by her lawyers, by our, you know, her lawyers telling her to behave a certain way, by the lawyers, you know, for the government, by the manipulation of the American people, by, again, it's a patriarchal group of men. Yeah, I don't see a woman anywhere. The part about the jury is so, so relevant. All right, now I want to move on because we only have an hour with you, although I might want to ask you to do another podcast because there's so much to talk about. But now we need to talk about Ethel the person. And I have a child. You have two children. We both read the book. I was nowhere near motherhood at that point in time. But if you asked me to choose between betraying my husband, who I'm now divorced from, so maybe that's not a really fair way to ask, but betraying my husband or betraying my child, I would have gone with my child every single time. And the parts in the book where, and we, again, we're not going to have time in this podcast to go delve into this. She spent a lot of time writing to her sons. She left them a lot of quotes to live by. She thought very carefully about how young they were to lose their mother in this way and what it was going to do to the rest of their lives. She was clearly heartbroken. This was not a woman who was not engaged with her children. And even that last day that you describe, again, another reason to read this book about how spending the time with her boys that she did on the last day Can you tell me in a little bit of time, why do you think after the knowledge you now have of her, why did she pick him over them? Okay, well, I have thought about that a lot. I just want to also come back to the judge in his summing up when he accused her of being a bad mother, of preferring communism to her children, of a crime worse than murder. You know, all of that struck home so deeply. It was such a blow. I didn't know what I'd find. But, you know, there's a natural defensiveness as a mother. You know how hard it is to be a mother. So I did find that Ethel was extremely engaged. And what made her so? Well, she came from a dysfunctional family. Her own mother, Tessie Greenglass, an immigrant, both her parents. She turned on her. She absolutely turned on her. Well, 
turned or was she always against? So you see, I would argue that Tessie never showed her any gotcha. more yep. encouragement. Yep. She never, when Ethel acquired this ability to sing and to act, her mother never came to watch her. Those sort of talents were not recognized by her mother. Her mother, Tessie, believed that only the boys needed a job. The only thing a girl had to do in the family was perhaps work in a secretarial clerical capacity for a bit and then get married. That was all that was expected, whereas her three brothers all had proper education. And Ethel was clever and could have gone to college and maybe her mother was jealous. So that's a possibility. But I think that Ethel positioned herself to be a better mother than her own mother had been. It wasn't just enough for her to be a good mother. She had to teach her children music, open their eyes to everything that she'd been denied. And I think in looking at why did she go with loyalty in the end? Well, none of us can know what it's like to be in solitary confinement for two years. She was in prison for three in all, but without access to proper help and guidance, there was really nobody helping her. The, the attorney was trying to do his best for both of them. And I think as Ethel thought about what are the options, I do believe she was trapped. I don't think she had any way out. I don't think it was a given that if she'd confessed, she'd be let off. And I think she concluded, how can I live with my sons when they realize that my freedom has been bought at the price of my husband's death? So life really wasn't worth living if she had to kill Julius. I think she also decided that too many of Julius's spy ring were friends and she was not going to name names and put them through the same trauma that she and Julius were going through. And then I think once she realized the depth of the green glasses treachery, how they had betrayed Julius and Ethel, she really decided the only legacy I can give my sons, because I have nothing material to give them, no money, but I can die with dignity and I can die on the road of loyalty versus betrayal. And I think that became her mantra with great clarity that she felt she was giving her sons much more by remaining loyal, not just to Julius, but to her friends, and that ultimately her sons would understand why she had done that. And she's, of course, been proved right. Well, it's funny because as you're talking now, another thought is coming to me, and that is also, you're right, she was in prison for three years. During those three years, the two boys lived with a lovely couple, and she was seeing them. And so maybe she could also imagine that they were going to be okay in the end, and that she was so notorious that living with her would have been a notorious life that wouldn't have given them any mm -hmm. anonymity whatsoever, and that maybe it was a better life for them without her. That's possible, right? I think she must have thought that, yeah. and, and clearly that's how it worked out. I mean, they didn't go immediately to the wonderful Mirapoles because there were attempts to institutionalize them even after Ethel and Julius's death. So it took a while. But once they did, they seemed to have had the clarity, the discipline. And I did meet the child psychologist who had actually helped Ethel in those days when Michael, her firstborn, was quite a difficult and challenging child and keeping her up all night. And I asked her, obviously, you know, how do you explain that these two boys have grown, you know, they're now men in their 70s, but they're both retired college professors, and they're not bitter. They've stuck to their parents' memory. 
and tried to fight for their mother's exoneration, but they've led good, responsible lives. And she said, well, it's three things. First of all, they were obviously very intelligent. And secondly, they had this redemptive, adoptive parents. But thirdly, you know, they just must have had good mothering from Ethel. And we now know how important those early years are. Those are wonderful things. So I think Placing her, I want to move on to some other elements, but placing her in the context of her time, I think everybody listening can really hear how well Anne is laid out. What a unique and unusual situation this was, never having happened actually before. And I'm not sure it's really happened again since. So I think it's important to put it in context. So I'm going to ask you to sort of suspend reality for a minute. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. If this had happened today, if let's say somebody was accused of providing information to North Korea or to Putin right now, and it could happen because if you look at the Putin relationships in America right now, it's not surprising, you know, it would not be out of the realm that somebody could be accused of something like this. Okay. What tools have been gained since 1953? (laughs) for a woman to stand up today to that kind of construct where so many men have put her in a position where there's really no way out. Do you think it's changed so much? Do you think Ethel would have a shot today that she didn't have then? Well, uh, there are a lot of differences. I always hate the what if questions as a historian. Got to go for a couple of, yeah, exactly. Too many variables. But there's one technical difference. Ethel and Julius did not know what David had said in his grand jury statement. So they were fighting a case with one hand behind their back or two hands, actually. But anyway, that changed in 1957. You have to reveal what was said in the grand jury evidence. So that couldn't happen. I think, you know, much of what was used in the trial was would be inadmissible evidence. And that's really at the heart of my book. I don't deny that they according to the law of the time, you know, conspiracy to commit espionage is almost impossible to disprove. So, of course, you could have given them a jail sentence. It's just not to kill them. So that also has changed. I mean, in Britain since 1965, we don't have capital punishment. I know it's more complex in America, but there are certainly powerful arguments, especially with with your present president, against capital punishment. So we have a different attitude because we know too many people who have been killed who subsequently have been proved innocent. But I think, generally speaking, the idea that a government would willingly treat one of its citizens as expendable and orphan two children, I can't imagine that happening today. I do think it was a particular moment in time of real existential fear. And in order to, you know, as you read the final letter from Eisenhower, he believed that if you didn't kill both of them, that America would be at the mercy of all sorts of spies. So they had to paint Ethel as this really extra wicked person, because whereas most people could understand that maybe a man could be a spy, they could not understand how you could kill both parents and orphan the children unless you convince them that Ethel really was the most wicked type of American motherhood. And that's why they vilified her to such an extent. But 
I like to think it wouldn't happen today that there'd be, you know, the Pope, Einstein, Jean-Paul Sartre, that there was a big international movement ranged against doing it. But I think there was such fear of the power of the Soviet Union with an atomic arsenal that it was a particular moment in fear. We haven't mentioned McCarthy. I mean, there's so much I want to say. By the end, of course, Hoover was against the electrocution. Well, I was just going to bring that up. I was just going to say to you, Anne, that you know, you talk in the book about Hoover almost in a panic at the end. Oh my God, what have I done? Because he, the way he projected what was going to happen didn't happen. In other words, Julius didn't bend. He used her to make Julius say, so Hoover's in a panic. Oh my God, there's protests all over the world about this. We're going to look like, but even that, even the fear of, of that didn't move him from no. the egomaniacal, crazy man that he was, you know, it didn't move him. He did say, she called our bluff. And the two men who, who were responsible for decrypting the cables, they also wanted to put in a plea for her not to be electrocuted. But because Venona had to be kept secret, their pleas went unanswered. But, you know, this sank deep into the American psyche that she was a particularly wicked person. And you see that in the electrocution itself, in that ghastly electrocution chamber. As you rightly said in the introduction, they didn't know who to kill first because they thought if they killed Ethel first, Julius was the weaker one. I mean, these stereotypes all the time. So if Julius was the weaker one, clearly he'd give names at the end or quite possibly he would. And then how bad would that look, Hoover worried? Well, because they had killed a woman. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he actually went over those scenarios. Imagine. Yes. So they had to kill Julius first, and then this gruesome and barbaric attempt to kill Ethel, and the straps didn't fit properly, or for whatever technical reason, they gave her three jolts that are normally enough, and it wasn't, so they put the stethoscope to her and found that her heart was still beating, had to re-strap her, give her two more, and then she was killed. But listen to Bob Considine, who was the veteran journalist, you know, the Walter Cronkite, if you like, of his day, announcing what had happened. And what he actually said is key to this story. He said that she was given three jolts, enough to kill a normal person. So there you have it. You know, the press was saying, this is not a normal person. So they believed that actually the reason they'd had to give Ethel a bigger dose was because obviously she was not normal and she was the stronger of the pair. So, you know, it is laced at every stage with this quite shocking misogyny. It is. It's it's absolutely crazy. Okay. A couple things I wanted to bring up from the book. Okay, one of the quotes that Ethel left her sons was, honor means that you are too proud to do wrong, but pride means that you will not own that you have done wrong at all. Okay, decipher that. It's an important quote. Yeah, it wasn't hers. She was quoting George Eliot. Right, but she gave that to her sons. If I was a child of this woman, and now I'm, let's say, 35 years old, and I'm reading this quote with an understanding of the, the underlying meaning of that, what does that mean? I think she's telling them I didn't do it. Yes, I think she is. 
but in various ways she kept saying, but believe in our innocence. I don't use innocent and guilty because they're too black and white. I think she was trying to help them find a way of understanding why she hadn't cut herself free, which I won't repeat. I've explained to you why I think she couldn't and didn't. And she was trying to give them a message to live with to show that, of course, she'd loved them, but it simply was not possible. And she did have an element of pride. I mean, I think she was aware of her own sense of self to an extent, but I think overriding all of that was just the importance of loyalty and not being part of the green glass betrayal. But, I, you know, I also think of her, you know, I, I think of my own mother at the time because my own mother, I was born in 53, so she's one generation past, but my mother wouldn't have that quote in her repertoire. A lot of the mothers of that time would not have that intellectual capability because they weren't trained to, they weren't educated that way. She really was a very thoughtful person. And when you described earlier how she gave her sons all these lessons that she hadn't had, she dug deep. She did not water ski through her motherhood the way many of the women back then did. They were a lot of them were were put on on pills so that they could be calmer because they were having such yes. anxiety about quelling their own goals and yeah. everything. It was a different time for women, which again, I'm a last ploy for this, which is why this book has to be read by the new women coming up. Why women underneath the age of 40 need to read this book. You need to understand the women of that time and what we owe to them and how very hard they worked, you know? Well, I think one of the stories is that Ethel's fellow mothers in Knickerbocker Village thought she was peculiar because <laughs> when she made a play date, you know, she would get on the floor and play with the children. <laughs> and they thought, a play date? That's for the mothers to chat, you know, ignore the children. But that wasn't Ethel. And people, she was very progressive. She yes. wanted her sons to call her Ethel. It was an unusual attitude to mothering. Now, also, the way you've described her, and the book starts out with a little sentence that I want to bring in here, because the way we're talking about her in this podcast, for those that are not have not read the book, it sounds like she's pretty solid woman, hardened. We're not talking about the fear she must have had, and as you've pointed out, she must have carried alone because she didn't have a lot of people supporting her those three years in prison. I want to read something that you wrote. And she said, although as she admitted earlier in private to her lawyer, she shivered from head to foot when she thought of getting into an electric chair and having an electric current run through her, she had made up her mind as she promised him to die with honor and with dignity. So I don't want anybody to think that she did this easily. No. <laughs> it took a tremendous amount of courage for her to walk in as she did stoically into that room, sit down, get strapped in. She hugged the women who brought her in. This was not easy for her. I just want to say that. We've sort of described her as this, you know, this very, you know, she was as terrified as you or I would be. Well, I think one of the most moving letters to her sons is when they came to see her right at the end and they got upset that she wasn't crying and how she immediately wrote to them afterwards. She immediately wrote to her sons afterwards to explain why she hadn't cried and broken down. My dearest darlings, this is the process known as sweating it out and it's tough, that's for sure. At the same time, we can't let a lot of chickens that go about their business without panic, even when something's frightening them. 
We can't let them put us to shame, can we? Maybe you thought that I didn't feel like crying too when we were hugging and kissing goodbye, huh? Even though I'm slightly older than 10. Darlings, that would have been so easy, far too easy on myself. And I had to resist a very real temptation to follow your lead and break down with you. Because I love you more than myself. And because I knew you needed that love far more than I needed the relief of crying. I, I sometimes can't read that letter myself without. I'm, I'm, yeah, you, the, you read a bit. Be- no, I, I tried to control myself, but I've talked about that with Michael and Robbie, and they said that it took them 20 or 30 years to understand what an extraordinarily valuable letter that was for them to hang on to because they were living in the countryside in an area where there were chickens, so they'd understand that simile. But also not crying was something that Ethel felt she had to do. And I think it's extraordinary when you remember she'd been on her own for two years in solitary and was just trying to leave her sons with something valuable. And, And I think these letters really have been. Well, I think what you've done here is you've created a hero. A hero for women. And we don't have a lot of heroes that we can look back on, especially in those times, you know, we just don't. And so I can't thank you enough for that gift. So we're going to leave Ethel behind here, but I have a couple of other questions. Because I've got you here and because you've written such extraordinary books and I've now ordered some of your other books, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. And I know you much rather talk and just lay out the historical context, but all right, I'm going to ask you either or. Are you ready? <laughs> Wallace Simpson or Ethel Rosenberg? Oh, Ethel, every time. (laughs) And you'll never guess what they have in common. Wallace's birthday is June the 19th, Ethel's death day. Isn't that one of life's really extraordinary um, coincidences of numbers? And the other thing I would say about Wallace, who I did find fascinating and the reason is because she deserved to be understood as well. I mean, I I like doing well. Revision. I talk about the press making it her fault rather than yes. his fault. It's like I haven't read the book yet, but I've ordered it, and I will tell. And maybe we can do another podcast around that because again, what you've laid out so beautifully about what the press did to Ethel, they did it to Wallace too. You know, Completely. he was not, he was not duped. <laughs> no, well, you'll see when you read the book. I mean, she didn't want to go ahead with the marriage in the end, but she had to. She was trapped as well, although by her own manipulation. But it's not a royal book. You know, it's a book about an ordinary woman who found herself in royal circles and couldn't or get an, out. Or an ordinary woman who found herself in an extraordinary situation, you know? Yes. I mean, she's not lovable totally, but deserves to be understood. By the way, neither is Ethel. You know, neither am I, neither are you. Like, why do we, you know, we definitely have to leave the thing of women should be lovable. I'm over being lovable. Trust me. I was lovable for a really long time and it cost me a lot. I'm just saying. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you for saying that. Because, you know, of course Ethel is flawed. And I I really don't shy away from that. No, you don't. I do admire her. Yeah. And by the way, I love that you didn't shy away from it. You didn't make her all one thing or another, which is another reason why I want to read Wallace Simpson, because I imagine that you have this uh, critical eye for both. For Okay, now, Mother Teresa or <laughs> Ethel Rosenberg. 
Oh, Ethel, every time. I love that you're saying that. Well, I had serious misgivings about Mother Teresa. Well, and frankly, I, I haven't read the book yet, but it's my understanding Mother Teresa wasn't quite the mother we all thought she was. <laughs> so I can't wait to read that as well. You know, again, historical times. It was just intriguing to see the role that she played. And so I loved researching it. It was difficult to write because I didn't want to destroy someone who lots of people found helpful in their lives. And you dedicated your book to Mark Jonathan Saba, whose encouragement to write this book has sustained me. Who was he and what was his encouragement? Oh, Mark was my husband. We were married very young at 23. And he had a sudden heart attack one day when I was in the middle of writing this book. He just asked for a glass of water and went. And his encouragement to write this book is because I think we both were very conscious of our Jewish roots. My parents and his came from Eastern Europe. Having lived in Brooklyn, we often went to the Lower East Side and we often talked about, you know, what if this could have been our story? In fact, our parents came to England. So I think he really felt and I want to emphasize if the, this book is about one thing, it's about importance of the rule of law. And he just really believed this was an important book, as indeed I do. So I just carried on, but without my, my husband of 40, 43 years. Well, it was a wonderful dedication. Um, and thanks for clarifying it a little bit for me. And I'm going to end this podcast with your words. And this is what you wrote about when it was all over. So closed the story of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Most reporters wrote in their accounts of the day, but they could not have been more wrong. Ethel Rosenberg was not, I believe, a spy, nor was she a saint. She was obstinate, determined, prone to self-doubt, and did not make friends easily. She was also a committed communist, highly intelligent and fiercely loyal to her beloved husband, who undoubtedly was a communist spy, passing military secrets to the Soviet Union. Ethel's downfall inevitably raises questions about the extent of her complexity as well as the fallibility of the law. But it is also a tale of betrayal, both of a country and by a family. I'm going to leave it with that. And I can't thank you enough for the time you spent with me today. And I'm hoping I can lure you back as soon as I've read Wallace or, or something along that. Well, thank you for reading it so thoroughly. And yeah. um, I love chatting to you about it, as you can tell. I'm still in the book. Mm -hmm.